I just love Christmas in July. It would be good in August. March would be all right as well. Wow. Such amazing music written, isn't it? Celebrate that fantastic gift that God would send his own son into the world to save you and me. Amazing. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 2, please. Matthew 2. We're continuing our study in Matthew's gospel and... These early chapters are some very familiar ground, I'm sure, to most of us. The danger of familiar ground is that we can move through it without stopping to pause and think too carefully about what it is we're reading. We know the story, and so we just go into automatic pilot, as it were, and pass through the story without pausing to really think too too carefully about what it has to say, and why Matthew includes it. Of the many, many things that Matthew could have written about, he chose what he did, and he did it for a purpose. And his grand purpose, of course, in all of this, is to make it plain that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed Messiah of Israel, a light to the Gentiles, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so Matthew selects what he does to prove that purpose. And so we're going to see this morning as we begin chapter 2, further demonstration that Jesus is the rightful king of Israel. And we are also going to see this morning that Matthew will foreshadow for us here in chapter 2, what will be or should be the response of the Gentile nations to Israel's king. And so we come to, this mor- to the, to the uh, chapter this morning, chapter 2, and it's the story of the Magi, right? The story of the Magi. As we begin to examine this text before us, and we're only going to be able to put our toe into the water this morning here in chapter 2, but as we begin, we're going to find that there are, there are really three different responses that can be observed here. Three different responses to the birth of Jesus. And we want to see them. Matthew wants us to see them so that we might examine our own hearts with regard to this great event. We should be able to find ourselves in this narrative, as it were. Now, let's talk about a little background to get started. Time has passed. Between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, a fair amount of time has gone by in the white spaces. The reason we know that is because of the change in circumstances. Luke records for us shepherds coming the night of the birth, right, of the Messiah to see. But here in chapter 2, we look and we find down in verse 11 that the child is now in a home. You see that down there? He's in a house. And so we know that a certain amount of time has passed. Obviously, they have moved from where the place the child was born and now have taken up residence in a home. Beyond that, down in verse 11 as well, 
We notice that Matthew refers to Jesus as a child. You see that in the beginning of the verse. He refers to Jesus as a child rather than an infant. Rather than an infant. So some time has passed. This infant has become a child. Furthermore, just contextually making some observations before we dig too deep here. That if we remember the story as recorded in Luke, that Mary went to the temple to offer the required sacrifices on the 40th day after the birth of her son in accordance with the Levitical law. And that's given to us in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 and following. And what we notice that when Mary went to the temple to make the required sacrifices, she offered two pigeons, which were the minimal sacrifice required for someone who was poor. So she gave the sacrifice of a poor family. And the reason I think that's significant is because if she had received the gifts of the Magi, she, as a good and devout Jewish girl, would have given a much more significant gift as part of her ritual purification. So, again, it's likely the Magi came much later. Finally, one other to just observe, and that is all the way over to verse 16. And uh, Herod here seeks to to, uh, kill all the children, and notice that it's the children that are two years old and under. Two years old and under. And it says, according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. So again, the passage of time has occurred here. Maybe, Maybe even one more beyond that. Verse 22 kind of indicates when they came back from Egypt that they were intending to take up residence again, probably in Bethlehem. But having been warned by God in a dream, they go north into Galilee. And I just would suggest to you that that would indicate that they had already a residence established there in Bethlehem that they were going to be coming back to. So for all of these reasons, as as Matthew begins chapter 2 here, we need to understand some time has passed. Some time has passed from the birth of the child until the visit of the Magi. So let's read the text together now and... Begin to dig in. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went on their way. And lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. When they saw the star... 
they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. A very, very familiar story to us. But as we look at the text, we see the three responses. And and I've given it to you in the title. That is homage, hostility, and indifference. Those are the basic three responses that we find in this text. Homage or worship, hostility by some, and or indifference by others. This morning, I want to just look with you at the first reaction, which is homage or worship. Homage or worship. We see it in these first couple of verses with the introduction of the Magi. Now, Matthew opens this narrative here with his first geographical marker. This is the first time he has given us any kind of a geographical location to anchor his, his story His narrative. And he says in verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Bethlehem of Judea. This is important because in order to be the rightful king of Israel, one must have been born in David's village. One must be a descendant of David. Of course, chapter 1, Matthew lays that out for us. So it should be expected, any, any pious Jew would expect Jesus' birth to have occurred in Bethlehem. And so Matthew makes sure that we know about that. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Born in the same village as David. Bethlehem means house of bread. It's a small village located about five miles south of the capital city of Jerusalem. This is where David was born. And this is where the greater son of David was to be born as well. Furthermore, Matthew tells us that this account occurred, verse 1, in the days of Herod the king. The days of Herod the king. Now we know from third-party secular sources that Herod himself died around 4 B.C. Around 4 B.C. And what that means to us, very simply, is to acknowledge that the, the way that we currently mark time in the Western world between B.C. and A.D. was a good effort, but it was an effort that has some problems built into it. And that is that Jesus was born before, before 1 B.C. He was born before he was born. Or, no, you know what I mean. So, and just understand that the whole B.C. A.D. thing was adopted in the early 6th century. And there are some mistakes in the calculation. So he was born in the days of Herod the king. If you check the life of Herod the king, you'll find he, was, he died about 4 B.C. So Jesus was born somewhere prior to 4 B.C. So sometime after the birth of Jesus, before the death of Herod, Matthew says, behold, verse 1. He says, behold. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Strange travelers show up in Jerusalem. They're known as Magi. 
Their arrival is entirely unexpected and arouses a considerable amount of interest on behalf of both the residents of Jerusalem and the reigning authority, Herod himself. Matthew indicates that to us with a little word translated in at least some of the English versions, behold, behold. It's a Greek word, adu, it it just means look, pay attention, listen. Suddenly something happened. It's it's to indicate to us that there's there's a dramatic event that has occurred. Life is going on somewhat normally when all of a sudden, behold, into the city of Jerusalem show up these strange and enigmatic characters known as magi. Sit up, pay attention, wake up, listen. Something significant is happening. What is it about the arrival of these magi that that causes such interest on behalf of the people? Who are they? Who were they? Where did they come from? Well, the scripture gives us some help. Some help on the Magi. Literally, it says, verse 1, that they came from the east. You see it? They came from the east, or more literally, from the rising. From the rising. The place of the rising. The idea is the rising of the sun. So they come from the place of the rising of the sun. From the east. And they are looking for one who is born, verse 2, king of the Jews. He is born king of the Jews, not born to be king of the Jews, but we're talking about somebody who is king of the Jews and is that by virtue of his birth. He comes into this world as king of the Jews. Beyond that, they say, verse 2, we saw his star. We saw his star. So they saw something. They saw something that's called a star, and by virtue of seeing that, they start out on a quest. We can also observe down in verse 11 that they brought with them some very significant and lavish gifts. They brought some very extravagant and valuable gifts with them, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So these are the things that Matthew indicates to us. And beyond that, we don't know a whole lot of things more definitely. But there are some additional facts I think we can kind of bring alongside this account if we will look into some secular history. So let's do that. The Greek word magoi in the plural or magos in the singular, Latin term magi, so that's The origin of that word is a transliteration of an Iranian word that means greatness. Greatness. So their very name means greatness. That indicates something about them. In the 5th century BC, the Greek historian Herodotus, he indicates that the Magi were a priestly tribe of Medes. They were living in eastern Mesopotamia around the time of Isaiah the prophet which would have been the 7th century B.C. So they were a priestly tribe living in the east, in Mesopotamia. Beyond that, they were monotheistic. 
They were monotheistic. That is, they worshipped one God. And as part of their worship, they had a deep interest in astrology and astronomy. It was very much wrapped into their worship system. They also had a sacrificial system, and it somewhat resembled the Jewish sacrificial system. Yet at the same time, they, they were involved in occult practices such as sorcery and the interpretation of dreams. So they worshipped one God, not the one true God, but they worshipped one God. They practiced a sacrificial, that is a blood sacrifice system. They were very interested in astrology and astronomy, and they were interested in sorcery and dream interpretation. We further learn that when Zoroastrianism, which is an ancient religion of that part of the world, when it was made by Darius the Great in the 6th century, the the official religion of the Medo-Persian Empire, that they quickly and easily adapted to such a religious change. It's likely that when we read in Daniel about magicians, conjurers, and Chaldeans, also known as wise men, Remember the ones that Nebuchadnezzar, he was going to destroy them all because they couldn't interpret his dream? Do you remember that? Daniel 2. It's likely that they were part of this priestly class. Likely they were magi or wise men. They were very influential in the Persian court. Very influential. In fact, it would be highly unusual for a king of that part of the world and in that time to be crowned a king without their blessing and concurrence. And again, this is a little hard for us. We don't live in a monarchy and our, and our understanding of monarchies is rather limited as well. But it is typical for someone to become a king that they need to be blessed by a priest. That is typical as to how monarchies work. And so here, in the same way, to to come to the throne of the Medo-Persian Empire, one would need the blessing of this priestly caste. So it would be fair to call them kingmakers. They are kingmakers. They provide the, the stamp of approval from the religious side. Now, there's a few other things that I find interesting, so I'm going to share them with you with regard to the Magi. In the Middle Ages, in Europe, all kinds of legends sprung up around the Magi or the wise men. Because there are three gifts listed here, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, it came to be assumed that there were three of them. And that they, over time, became kings themselves. And so we have a Christmas hymn called We Three Kings, right? Hymn number 166, We Three Kings. Okay? It's all legend. That hymn is all about legend. They were said to represent the three sons of Noah. It works out very conveniently. This is, by the way, in the time when allegorical interpretation of the scriptures was uh, reigning. And so it just kind of fits. There's three sons of Noah. There are three wise men. And so each of them must be one of the sons of Noah. So they have, were given names. Balthashazzar, who was considered to be Shem and represent the people group of Asia. 
And then the second wise man was Caspar, and, and he was supposed to be Japheth and, and to represent the people group of Europe. And then there was Malchior, who was supposed to be Ham and represent the people group of Africa. And so if you have a nativity scene in your house, you'll have three wise men, and likely one of them is dark-skinned, one of them is light-skinned, and one of them is brown-skinned. And that's where it all comes from. In our home, by the way, I just need to say this, we're not allowed to put the Magi near the manger scene. (laughs) My children will have no part of it. So they reside on the other side of the room, and then over time they get to come closer. (laughs) I raised a bunch of literalists when it comes to the Scriptures, and so, yeah, no way. So if they go into your house and they kind of frown, that's what they're... That's their problem. You got your magi too close to the manger scene. Needs to be some space. The 12th century, the Bishop of Cologne, Germany, he claims to have found their skulls. And uh, he has them. They were put into like a museum where they became religious uh, relics. And you could come and, and kind of worship there. And you were supposed to be a means to dispense grace. So uh, he claims he found their skulls. Now, how anyone would ever know that it was their skulls, yeah, you get the idea. Anyway, so these, this is all this is built up around these three men, or however many men there were. So back to Matthew. After Jesus was born, verse 1, in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, pay attention. Behold. Take notice. Kingmakers from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is the one born king of the Jews? They arrive in the city of David, Jerusalem the capital city. They show up with their servants and their bodyguards. No one would travel the thousand miles that it took to come from where they reside to the capital city in Jerusalem, travel across all of that, those trade routes with all of the bandits along the way, carrying gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and do it on three camels without bodyguards. Likely a contingent of cavalry. So when they ride into through the gates and into the city, and the dust is being you know poured up from all of their steeds, and their armor is glistening, and they ride in and they and they begin to ask people here, there, and everywhere, where is the one born king of the Jews? The city takes notice. The city takes notice. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody wants to know what is going on. Verse 1, the end, it says saying. Do you see that? Present participle, saying. The idea is a repeated activity. They didn't ask one person. They went from person to person to person. Where is he born king of the Jews? Where in his capital city, where is he to be found? Where is he to be found? Why, by the way? Why did they 
Why did they make this journey? Why leave Persia? Why travel a thousand miles at a fair amount of risk in order to come to Jerusalem? What would motivate this to happen? Beginning of verse 2, second half really, it says, We saw his star, and the New American Standard translates it in the east. That's unfortunate. This is one I'll have to give to the uh, ESV. You'll be pleased, you ESV readers. It's a difficult expression, but it's more, probably more appropriately translated when it rose. When it rose. Not talking so much about direction, but about reality. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. And have come to worship him. His star, notice. Something identified with him born king of the Jews. And when it rose, we saw it and we are now here to worship him. But it takes more than that, doesn't it? We saw his star when it rose. What in the world? Again, there's context. This is where a little history helps. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 that God sent forth his son in the fullness of time. In the fullness of time. It wasn't a random event. Why did Jesus come when he came? Why not earlier? Why not later? The answer is because God has a timetable. And it was appropriate according to his timetable that at that point in the history of the world, God would enter space and time in the person of his son, second person of the Godhead. In the fullness of time. There are some other Facts that we can observe, I think, that help actually elaborate what it means is the fullness of time. And that is that the ancient world, there was, there was a growing expectation in the ancient world of a deliverer. That a deliverer was coming. In fact, it was kind of like today. There is a growing expectation in the world today that things cannot continue the way they presently are. That we are on some kind of collision course with something. And in the ancient world, this, this growing expectation that somehow a deliverer was going to come to rescue the world. For example, the Roman historian Suetonius, he wrote about a hundred years after this. And he wrote the following, quote, There had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. Now, that is an interesting observation made by a Roman historian. Tacitus, another Roman historian, writing about the same general period of time, writes, and I quote, There was a firm persuasion that at this very time the East was to grow powerful, and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a universal empire. 
Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Romans, Rome's emperor, Augustus Caesar, and it was the benefactor of Herod, was called by many the savior of the world. The savior of the world. And that was due primarily to his implementation of what's called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. So people were looking for a deliverer, a savior. Is it Augustus Caesar? But somewhere, somehow, and it seems like focused on Judea, which is nowhere in the Roman Empire, it is a backwater place, that an emperor is going to come, a ruler is going to come, a king is going to arise. Josephus, the Jewish historian, he writes that the Jews themselves had a belief that one of their own would become governor of the habitable earth. This was widely held, widely held. A general expectation that something is about to happen. So let me fill in now what I think is going on. I suspect that these magi, these wise men, coming from the east, coming from the remnants of the old Babylonian empire, which had been conquered and subsumed into the Medo-Persian empire, which had been conquered and subsumed into the Greek empire, had access to the ancient prophecies of Daniel. God had sent Daniel, as you remember, into Babylon and had established him there in a position of high authority over the wise men of Babylon. And so Daniel himself records the most amazing set of prophecies. You remember that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, right? And his wise men could not interpret the dream. And so they were, they were all to be executed. But Daniel came forward and Daniel was able to interpret the dream. And it was the dream about the statue made of the various kinds of metals. Do you remember? And Daniel writes, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. He is talking about the stone cut without hands that will crush the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's statue was made of gold, Silver, bronze, and iron, and iron and clay. Do you remember? And it was the world empires of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then a revived Roman Empire. Furthermore, Daniel writes, Daniel 9 and verse 25. He says, So you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Now, I don't have time to start preaching Daniel 9 to us. But let me just suggest this to you, that it is talking about the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That occurred historically in 445 B.C. when King Artaxerxes issued the decree. You can read it for yourself in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. So the prophecies of the coming king existed. 
600 years before this time, these prophecies were given. I believe likely they were shared with the, with the priestly class of that day through Daniel. Furthermore, I think it's highly likely for people who are observant to recognize that Babylon had come and fallen, Medo-Persia had come and fallen, Greece had come and fallen, Rome was now on the throne. The prophecy had come true with only this final fulfillment piece. I think they came to Jerusalem looking because they were looking for the one that the prophets had spoken of. And when they saw his star, when it rose, they were convinced now is the time. And so they come looking. But what is this star? What is this star all about? Well, there has been a lot of speculation about the star. Bible commentators have had a field day talking about the star, both old and new. I've given a few suggestions that they wrote down. I've listed them out for you. I think they have a slide of them here. Some have suggested that it was a genuine star of great brilliance, just a legitimate star that somehow appeared in the sky. Others say it was the planet Jupiter, the planet Jupiter. It's known as the king planet. Still others note that it was a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation of Pisces, which is called the fish, in the year 7 B.C. Johannes Kepler, by the way, made that observation that in 7 B.C., indeed, Jupiter and Saturn came into, into conjunction in the constellation of Pisces. Now, I've already said more than I know about astronomy. I can't even find the Big Dipper. I'm sorry. But Kepler, I, I know about him, and Kepler was the one who put forward this theory that that's what it was. Two planets lining up. Origen, in the 2nd century B.C., he, the king of allegorizers, he said it was an erratic comet. So it's just like a comet kind of, you know, going everywhere, I guess. And they say, hey, look at that comet. Or this one, I always thought this one was a bit amusing. It was the star of destiny in the hearts of men. When you don't know what else to call it, that's what you call it. The star of destiny in the hearts of men. Nice. All right. So I'm going to tell you what I think it was. I think I have just as much right as anybody else here to put forward my idea. So I'm going to do that. I can't prove it. If you don't like it, you can lump it. I mean, you can uh, talk to me later. <laughs> I think it was the Shekinah glory of God. I think it was the Shekinah glory of God. That amazing brilliance of God that shows up at various places in the Old Testament. Reasons I think that, by the way, are no doubt in verse 7. 
Is it verse 7 I want? No, it's not 7. 9. It says, They went on their way, and the star which they had seen went on before them. Apparently, the star appeared and then disappeared and then reappeared. So that doesn't work so well if it's some sort of physical kind of phenomena. Some, something like Jupiter or Saturn or whatever. just doesn't make sense to me that it appears and disappears. Beyond that, it says it led them to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is five miles away from Jerusalem. So I don't see how a star can lead you that distance. Doesn't make any sense to me. How does that lead you from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, five miles away? And beyond that, it says it came and it stood, the end of verse 9, over where the child was. Stood over where the child was. Again, that that just boggles my mind. It It seems hard to believe that a comet, you know, can stand over the house of where the child is. So I don't think it was any of these natural phenomena. I think it was a supernatural occurrence. It was the occurrence of the Shekinah glory of God. That radiant light of God that appears at certain times in the history of God's people. The great light that shone around the shepherds, according to Luke chapter 2 and verse 9, right? When the announcement came, the angelic announcement. Or the pillar of fire in the desert that led the people out of their captivity. Exodus 13 and verse 21 Exodus 24 and 17 says the glory of the Lord was like a fire. Paul in Acts 9 and verse 3 and 26, 13 says he sees a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Revelation chapter 1 verse 16, John's vision of Jesus is said his face is shining like the sun. There is something about the brilliance of God where he breaks in on behalf of his people and it is a blazing forth. I think what they saw, and they saw it in the western sky, was the Shekinah glory of God blazing forth. And that caused them to consult their ancient records. And so as they poured over the ancient records, the ancient prophecies of Daniel, they came to realize that this is the time of the one to be born. And he will be born where? He will be born in Jerusalem, the city of David, the great king. And so off they come. They have an audience with Herod. We'll look at that next time. And Herod sends them on their way. Verse 8 says, And go make careful search for the child. Verses 9 and 10, they set out. Having heard the king, they went on their way. And lo... Pay attention. You won't believe this. It's amazing. The star, which they had seen when it rose, went on before them. Till it came and stood over where the child was. They're stunned. They're absolutely stunned. They've gotten the information that it's Bethlehem where they want to go. They set out on the journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And as soon as they set out, the star reappears and it leads them those last few miles and it brings them to the exact location, the the house where the child is living with his mother.
It says, verse 10, when they saw the star, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's just a, a biblical way of piling up terms to say that they were deliriously happy. They were absolutely blown away. They couldn't believe it. The journey was near its conclusion. The star is going to take them right to the very spot. And so they come into the house, verse 11. They come into the house and they saw the child. They saw the child. They fell down and they worshipped him. The prophet Isaiah had said that the Messiah would be a light to the nations. Isaiah 42 and verse 6. In fulfillment, the ancient promise to Abraham of Genesis 12 and, and verse 3. So here are these Gentile kingmakers bowing down before this child in worship. The prophecy of Isaiah is beginning to come true. It's beginning to come true. Now, how about those gifts? How about those gifts? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These were the gifts fit for king. These were rare. These were costly. Frankincense. Frankincense is a milky white in color, and it comes from the resin of a tree that grows only in Ara on the Arabian Peninsula, India, and Somalia. It's thought in the ancient times to have medicinal value, but its major purpose was as an ingredient in incense. It was a major piece of the incense used, by the way, in the Jewish temple as part of their worship. Frankincense. When it burns, it smells like balsam. Myrrh is reddish in color, and it is also a resin, and it comes from a tree growing only in Arabia and Ethiopia. Again, very rare. It is used primarily as an ingredient in perfume. If you read through the Song of Solomon, you will find that myrrh is used as a perfume. These resins were ground up into either powder and then liquefied or left as powder. They could also have value. Myrrh could have value in the, in the treatment of a dead body. If one was wealthy enough that they would wrap the body in, in linen. And then they would sprinkle myrrh between each layer of wrapping. And it would overcome the effect of the smell of the decaying flesh. It was also mixed with wine, a cheap narcotic. And it was offered to Jesus at his crucifixion. And he refused it. Of frankincense and myrrh. I have a picture of frankincense and myrrh. So frankincense on the left, myrrh on the right. You can take a look at it. And you know what? It's even cooler than that because I have frankincense and myrrh. Not bad, huh? So for those of you who would like to come up afterwards... And touch it or smell it. There it is. You may come. And you can go home and be the first on your block 
to have ever seen and handled and smelled frankincense and myrrh. It was so valuable, by the way, in the ancient world that it was weighed out in gold. Its value was worth its weight in gold. These were incredibly lavish gifts to bring. So when I think about this, I think to myself, Matthew, what do you want me to take away from all of this? What am I supposed to do with all of this? I understand the the prophetic fulfillments and, and, and how this continues to to provide the, the evidence that you are presenting here that Jesus is truly the Christ, the Messiah of Israel. I get that. But do I just leave it there? Do I just leave it in, in this historical fulfillment, this, this apologetical evidences, or is there more to be had? I think there's more to be had. So this past week, as I was reflecting upon all of this, I, I found myself confronted, really, with a couple of things. I found myself confronted with the, with the persistence of these, these magi in seeking Christ. This was a quest. This was a journey of biblical proportions, as we might say. This was not just get in your car and drive a few miles. This was a thousand miles along the ancient trade routes at great personal hazard and risk and cost, might might I say. And so I I am confronted with that kind of persistence in pursuing after Christ and the intensity of their worship when they find him. They fell on their faces before this child. These were powerful men. These were wealthy men. And yet they fall prostrate before this child. It confronts me. Worship, my friends, is not a casual behavior. It is not a casual behavior. It's not something to be entered into lightly. It's not a yawning thing. Uh, you know, I come or I don't come. I participate or I don't participate. These are prototypical Gentiles, if I can say it that way, who are coming into the presence of the king of Israel, who is the king of the universe. And they fall on their face. And they lavish him with gifts. And I'm confronted by that because of the number of times that I enter into the corporate worship in a casual way. Without proper preparation. Without thinking about what I'm doing. The time that I would sing a song and my mind is somewhere else and the words are coming out and the brain is gone. Or I will sit and listen to the scriptures being read or preached and my mind is somewhere else. Or I will come before the presence of Christ and the offering plate will be passed and I will have nothing to put in it. I'm confronted. I'm confronted. How far would I travel to worship Christ? How much would I give for the worship of my Savior. I think it's worth 
contemplating, isn't it? As we think about this, this Christmas narrative. Where are you at? What's going on in your heart and mind? How serious are you? How much do you know and understand? And what difference does it make? I think these are questions worth asking. They're worth asking of ourselves in those quiet times. And if you're not satisfied with your answers, call out upon the Spirit of God to help you to change. Let's pray. Our Father, under inspiration of your Spirit, Matthew has recorded for us here the most astounding narrative. In really just a few words, a few sentences, almost abbreviated form, he has, he has drawn together the, this most incredible account of how these ancient Persian kingmakers traveled across the known world in search of the one who was born king of the Jews. And our Father, if I am right, they did it in response to, to the word of God drawn and beckoned by your Spirit. Father, we don't know the state of their hearts, their souls. We don't know whether they were ultimately true followers of Yahweh. That is, whether they were redeemed and whether we will someday see them in glory or not. Father, and in that sense, it doesn't really matter because what Matthew has vividly given us here is a, is a model, is a, is a prototype, is a foreshadowing of what will be the true and great reality that the nations of the world will come and bow at the knee before the Son of God. Our Father, we're here this morning because we believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and, and by believing we have life in His name. And so, Lord, we gather to worship. And yet, our Father, our worship is more times than we would really want to admit less than full, less than focused, less than authentic. Father, may Your Holy Spirit grip our hearts through the truth of this account in Matthew this morning and and may he motivate us to make changes where change is is due may we be a worshiping people worthy successors to those first gentile worshipers we pray it because Jesus is worth it amen